starting at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. Then they will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with the justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they all look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Zach. Let's uh, pray before we think about those words. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much uh, that your word addresses us. Uh, where we are and in the situation that we find ourselves. Even these words written thousands of years ago can speak to us. Uh, They can speak to us living truths uh, and reassure us of your grace and your mercy in Christ Jesus, but also, Lord, confront us perhaps with things that we need to address, sin and evil in ourselves or, Lord, uh, in the church or in the world around us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would Confront us as we need to be confronted and comfort us as we need to be comforted. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be uh, looking at three chapters today. We just read one chapter then, obviously, uh, chapter 3. But we're going to be working through chapter 3, 4 and 5. You might be wondering why we're looking at so many chapters all at once. Uh, And the answer is because Micah is really divided into three cycles. Now, the first cycle is chapters 1 and 2, the second is chapters 3 to 5, and the last is chapters 6 and 7. And in each cycle, there's uh, rebuke and then hope. So in chapter 1, the the rebuke runs pretty much all the way through, but then in the last two verses, or last few verses of chapter 1, there is the promise of hope. I will surely gather you, chapter 2, verse 12, uh, and so on. Then in chapter 3, that we just read, it's all rebuke. 
But then chapter 4 and 5 give the hope of what God is going to do. And then in chapter 6 to chapter 7, verse 7, they are all rebuke. And then chapter 7 ends with the hope of God's restoration. And so as we're working our way through Michael, we want to look at those big blocks together so that when we are working through it, we don't miss the forest for the trees. Uh, These sections were designed to go together, rebuke and hope, uh, and so we want to work through that in the same way uh, so that we don't misunderstand uh, God's message in this book. It's really important, I think, that we do understand the message in this book because it is a message for us today. It's very, very important, I think, for us to understand the book of Micah for the context in which we're living today and in the context of a world, the world in which we live. So, as I said, chapter 3, the chapter that we read, begins with rebuke and condemnation. Why is God rebuking the people and who is he rebuking? Well, the rebuke here in that chapter that we read is really focused on the leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel. It begins, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Uh, and there's a number of accusations that are brought against the people of God, the leaders of God's people. In verses 1 to 3, they're rebuked because they, pres- they pursue and they promote injustice. So they hate good, they love evil, they devour the people that they rule over. Literally, they eat the people's flesh. They're, de- they're described as being like cannibals. That is, instead of caring for the people and providing for the people uh, and showing people's, the people the way of God... They're devouring them. Their actions rob and destroy them. The consequence of that, in verse 4, is that God won't listen to the leaders when they cry out to him. So here are the leaders, they're trying to lead the people, but God says they're devouring the people, and then when they finally come to call out to God, God's not going to listen. Second, the leaders decide what to prophesy to the people based on what works best for them. So they're not coming to the people with the word of God, they're coming to the people with words that suit them and kind of promote and, and, uh, and prop up their lifestyle. Verse 5 says they proclaim peace when they've got enough to eat. Okay, So when they're okay, they're like, no, nope, it's all good, everyone, peace, uh, things are going well. When they don't have enough to eat, they proclaim war because they want more food, Uh, They want more for themselves and they're not getting it. So their teaching has nothing to do with what God has to say to the people and everything to do with what they want, what suits them. And the consequence, God says, is that they will be in darkness. Darkness will come over them, verses 6 to 8 of chapter 3. Those things are uh, poetic descriptions. So the darkness is not actual darkness. He's not saying that, you know, you won't be able to find the light switch or something like that. But he says, night will come over you. What does that mean? Without visions and darkness, without divination or without, if you like, without understanding from God. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. Verse 6. Verse 7, they will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. What's the darkness? The darkness is that they will have no word from God. So they're coming up with their own words and God says, well, the, 
the result of that will be that, you, that when the time comes that you want to know what God is saying, he won't speak to you. In contrast, Micah says in verse 8, I'm filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Micah has been given the word of God, the spirit of God, not to tell people what they want to hear, not to tell people what suits the leaders of Israel, but to expose to the people their sin and their rebellion against God and to call them back to repentance. Third, the leaders in verses 9 to 11, we're told they're rebuked for ruling for profit. So they despise justice, they seek their own goals, their own aims through violence, through cruelty, through the destruction of others. And they do the work that God has entrusted to them for their own advantage. Uh, So whether that's leaders taking bribes, if you like judges taking bribes to make favourable decisions, or priests teaching to make money, or prophets taking bribes to tell the future. Uh, all they're in it for is their own advantage. And then again in verse 11, they look to God for help, but it won't come. In fact, we're told that Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, uh, all that they've stood for will crumble because of the corruption of the leaders. Why does God pick on the leaders? Why does he do that? might seem strange to us. We're probably more used to God speaking his word directly to us. But why does God speak to the leaders of Israel? Well, the reason is because as the leaders of God's people go, so go the people. If the leaders are corrupt, the people are corrupt because the leaders have been entrusted with the responsibility from God to lead the people in the way that they ought to be going. And so the fact that the people have corrupt leaders mean that the people are led into corruption. If the leaders devour the people, that means that the people will devour each other. If the leaders are cut off from God's word and are not speaking the words to the people, then they won't hear the words. The people themselves won't hear the words. They won't be able to speak the words to each other or know the word of God. If the leaders are not calling the people back to repentance, who will? The result of that is that the whole nation is destroyed. From that, really, a very small group of people, there is an enormous influence that destroys the people of God. It's for that reason that James tells us in the New Testament that leaders... And teachers in the church will be judged more harshly. Why is that? Uh, It's because they can lead the people astray. The writer of Hebrews says that leaders, the people who lead God's people, will have to give an account. Because their actions can be positive, but also their actions can be incredibly destructive. I don't know about you, I find that a terribly sobering thought. You're probably thinking to yourself, I'm glad I'm not a leader in God's church. 
Some of you may have heard, I suspect that many of you have not heard, but there's a podcast that's doing the rounds at the moment from Christianity Today. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a big church in the United States led by a pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll that some of you might have heard of, but it imploded maybe about 10 years ago. It imploded when it came out that although it was a very well-known church, it appeared to be a very successful church uh, and the leader of the church had a very, appeared to have a very successful ministry. Uh, it turned out that he'd been bullying uh, the people in his church. Uh, and it turned out, in, indeed, that the culture of the church was not that great. And sadly, that's not an isolated incident. Uh, it's distressing. Maybe I might see more of those stories than you do because I guess it's my job to live in that world in some ways. But the stories of churches that have been hit by corrupt leaders in the last few years has just been terrifying, heartbreaking. Uh, trusted leaders in the United Kingdom uh, abusing young men who've gone into min- uh, going into ministry. It's terrible to think that God's people could end up being led by leaders who are corrupt, who devour their own people, who are no longer led by God and who bring about the destruction of their, pre- of their people. It's a really terrifying thought, I think. And so we ought to pray that that won't happen to our church. hope that you could pray that for me and for the elders, for Steve for our ministry leaders, which is led at different levels and in different ways, but it's important that we pray that that wouldn't happen, that we wouldn't be a church that's led astray by corrupt leaders. And the kind of corruption that leads people into sin. You know, there's always going to be things that we don't disagree with. That's not what, what Mike is talking about. He's not talking about disagreements over the way the chairs are set up. He's talking about leadership that fails to address sin. Leadership that serves for its own advantage. And leadership that's cut off from God's word. We need to pray that that wouldn't happen to our church. But we also need to look, of course, beyond human leaders. All our human leaders will let us down. And our ultimate hope can never be in those leaders whoever they are, however good they are. The church doesn't stand or fall on any of, any of the ministry leaders in this church. It stands and falls on Jesus Christ. And it's when we substitute those leaders for Jesus that we start to run into problems. But Jesus never devours his people. He dies for them. He's never cut off from God's word and leading. He always speaks the truth of God. And his life never brings about the destruction of his people. His life always brings our salvation. We should pray for our human leaders, but we also need to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the great overseer of our souls. Well, that's the rebuke. The good news is that in the middle cycle of Micah, there's two chapters of hope. (laughs) And that's where we're turning now. 
God has a plan to deal with the sin of his Old Testament people. He has a plan to deal with the sin in us and in the church around the world as well. And we encounter his vision for that, his glorious vision for that, in chapter 4, his plan for his people. So let's read some of those words now. If you've got your Bible, uh, look at chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 to 8. It says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of God from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will gather the, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. What's God saying? It helps to know that in that day, that begins that section, in the last days, is language that's used in the Old Testament uh, for the time when God will fix everything up. It's the day of Jesus, or not really just the day, but the age of Jesus. We're living in that age now. It stretches from Christ's first coming to his second coming. Through that whole period, through this whole period, God is working out that plan. And the Old Testament was always looking ahead to that. And at the centre of that plan, that picture that God has, that vision that God has for his world, at the centre of that is God himself. The mountain of God, says verse 1, will be established as the highest of the mountains. That's kind of a poetic way of saying... God will be in the middle. God himself, it's God's mountain. It will be the highest. Everyone will be able to see it. God will be at the centre of the world. At the moment, the world that we live in, God is not at the centre. God is usually on the edges. And worse than that, God is often, people often try to kick God out of his world. He's not just not in the centre, he's not just on the edges, but people are trying to push him further and further out. But God promises, here's the great hope, that one day, a day will come when God is at the centre of the world. Visibly so, the highest mountain. Not only that, people will stream to him. People will come from every nation, we're told, to the place where God is. 
They come streaming to the mountain, but the idea is, again, poetically, that they're coming to God. There's all these people. There will be all these people. There are all these people, God says, in this day, who, who are coming, who want to know God, who want to love God with all their heart. People from all over the world. People like the women that we saw in the video. So often uh, we tell people about God, maybe, and they don't want to hear. Maybe that's your experience. But sometimes people do want to hear. Do you know there are people who want to hear the gospel? People in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, who are longing for it, though they may not say it or realise that they are. People across the world who are longing to hear the gospel. People across the world who are hearing the gospel and streaming to God. And those people, Micah says, who are streaming to God will want to walk in God's ways. They'll go to the mountain of God because they want to live as God has made us to live. They want to live in relationship with God. They want to live as God has intended us to live. Again, so often people, maybe they want God, but they don't really want that. They don't really want to walk in God's ways. They want to sort of get the, the other benefits of God. But without, these people are not like that. These people are coming to God, streaming to God, because they want to live for him with all their being. God promises here in this vision, he promises to bring about a world where he is at the centre, where he's honoured in the way that he deserves and where people walk in his ways. But from that kind of central idea, the passage spreads out to other things. The passage moves on to how God will fix up the trauma of the world. So God will bring justice, we're told. He'll settle disputes, long-held disputes. A nation won't take up sword against nation. And he'll judge between peoples. Think of Iran and Iraq, two countries that have been at odds for, for centuries. Or India and Pakistan. Or the US and Russia, the US and China. Those conflicts will end. Trade disputes with China. They'll end. Or think of the much smaller conflicts, closer to home, conflicts with family or conflicts in workplaces. God will settle long-held grudges, dissolve ancient bitterness. There will be an end to war. People will turn their weapons into tools for harvesting, the tools for work, because they won't need to fight against each other anymore. They won't train for war. No more Royal Military College in Canberra. It won't be needed. And there'll be great blessing. Everyone will sit under their own fig tree. One of the Bible college lecturers I had always used to quote that verse. That was his great vision of the new creation. Everybody's sitting under his own fig tree. It's an idea of shade and shelter and delight, rich Richness and abundance, not frustration and busyness, 
about joy and delight and rest. There's an end to suffering. Verse 6, God will gather the lame, the exiles, the grieving. He'll gather them to himself under his care. It's this beautiful picture of the world put right. All the things that are so hard, taken away, turned upside down. The world restored to the Garden of Eden. Who wouldn't want to live in a world like that? Who doesn't want to live? Who doesn't, at some sense, long for those kinds of things? As life gets too much and life gets too busy and too many pains that just seem to grow. Who doesn't long for that world? But it's important to see that the two ideas are related. God fixing up the trauma of the world is anchored in God being restored to the centre of the world. The second flows from the first. As I said before, many, many of us long for that second world. We want a world that's, you know, where we've got the fig tree, uh, where there's no more war, where there's no more disputes, there's no more uh, relational anxiety. We want that kind of world where there's no sickness, there's no pain. But so often we want that world without realising that it's actually anchored in God being at the centre, God being restored to the centre of the world, people flocking to God and people longing to walk under his ways. People want a world fixed up from evil, from misery, free from war, but without God at the centre. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about in the last few weeks and months has been how we as Christians have been responding to the pandemic in all kinds of different ways. I've been thinking a lot about what we talk about because often what we talk about reflects what we're interested in and what lies at the centre of our hearts and the centre of our desires. And when I think about what people are talking about with their friends and their family and their workmates. People are talking about things like lockdowns. That's what they talk about with their friends. That's what they talk about online. That's what they read online. Lockdowns or interstate travel uh, or overseas travel. Restrictions. The curtailment of rights. Vaccines. Vaccine passports. When will COVID end? When will life get back to normal? In other words, what occupies our time and our conversation and our thoughts seems to have a lot to do with the second lot of things that Micah talks about and very little to do with the first. Why is the world in a mess? The world is in a mess because God is not at the centre and people are not walking in God's ways. Thinking about all those other things is not unimportant, but thinking about those things as though they are the most central, the most important, is like trying to clean up after a nuclear disaster by going into the toilets with a mop. You're fiddling around the edges and not dealing with the core problem. 
The world is in a mess because God is not at the center. But here is God's vision for fixing up the world, a vision that we need to recapture for our time and our place, for ourselves. The vision is a vision of God at the center of the world with people streaming to him and longing to walk in his ways. That's what we need to pray for. That's what we need to occupy ourselves with. That's what we need to be at the centre of our lives today and tomorrow and the weeks to come. And all those other things will sort themselves out. But God needs to be at the centre. Well, that's God's remedy to a world that's in a mess. How does God get there? Well, let's look at uh, the rest of the passage. The way that God gets there is not maybe the way that you would expect. Let's read on in chapter 4, verse 9 to 13. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. Ride in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God says to the people in those verses uh, that he will bring about this great vision for the future by allowing Judah and Israel to be conquered. The nations are going to gather around them, he says, and they will gloat over you, but God will bring deliverance. God will raise his people up so that they will... uh, win victory over the nations. That is, God's way of achieving this great vision is, in some sense, through destruction. Verses 1 to 6. Let's keep reading of chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old... From ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. God says he's going to raise up a king. Uh, He's going to raise up a king who's going to shepherd and protect his flock, whose greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And then he tells us in verse 2 that this king is going to be from one of the smallest clans in in Israel, from Bethlehem, one of the smallest clans in Israel. And of course, many of us would know that that's where Jesus was born, in 
in Bethlehem, from the smallest tribe, the smallest clan in the smallest tribe. And in fact, Matthew quotes this passage from Micah chapter 5 when he talks about the birth of Jesus. He uses that, this passage to establish that Jesus is the one that God had promised. Not only that, we're told in chapter 5 verse 2, that this ruler, his origins are from old, from ancient times. And again, although Jesus was born in 6 BC in the land of Palestine, Jesus' origins are from of old. He was with the Father before creation, from all eternity past. So too we're told that the nations will strike this ruler with a rod. They'll, They'll inflict a punishment on him. But ultimately, he will win the victory. Of course, Jesus suffered a blow from Satan and from human beings as he hung on the cross. It looked like he was defeated. But God used that to raise up his people and deliver them from sin and death. Let's keep reading. Chapter 5, verse 7. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forests, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. Again, the vision there is that the people of Israel are remnant in the midst of the nations. So God will rescue his people, but not all his people, uh, not all the people of Israel, I should say, but all his people, the remnant of Jacob, will be gathered from the nations. Uh, and in the same way, the Bible tells us that not all humanity will be saved, but there will be a remnant saved from humanity. Some will remain hardened in their rebellion against God. But from all people, every tribe and every language and people and nation, God will gather for himself a people who trust him. Finally, the last few verses. In that day, there it is again, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. You might think, as we read read those words, that God has returned to rebuke, not hope. After all, he's destroying things, horses, witchcraft, idols. But it would be wrong to think that. This is actually at the core of the hope that God is delivering. You see, God is destroying from his world and from among his people all those evils that still exist. That's the hope. That's how God gets to be back at the centre. 
by God destroying all those things that are not right in the world and ultimately in us. You see, what Micah tells us and reminds us of is that God's way to his vision for the world, with him at the centre and people streaming to him, God's way to that is through judgment and destruction. And that judgment and destruction comes in one of two ways. It comes on those who continue to reject God. It comes on those people in the form of God removing those people from the world, judging them, condemning them to an eternity apart from God. That's one way that God will clean up his world and put himself back at the centre. The other way that God is doing it is he's cleaning up people who trust in him through Jesus taking on himself that judgment and destruction in our place. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserved, the penalty for sin that we deserved, but he also put sin to death so that whoever trusts in him is united with him through, through, through the Holy Spirit and cleaned up by the Spirit to be like Jesus. God is taking evil out of the world, but he's doing it through judgment, through hell, or through the death of Christ in our place, which we share in. Micah chapter 3 to 5 is a sobering rebuke, but it's also a message of hope and of glory. Of God moved from the edges of our world and of our hearts to God moved back into the centre. But that vision comes in a way that we don't expect. It comes through judgment, through destruction, either in us, in hell, or in Jesus, for those who trust in him. That's a message for us to hear. It's also a message for the world to hear. Because they need to know that God is putting himself back at the centre of the world as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we just want to ask that you would convict us uh, of everything that we need to be convicted of. Uh, That words of rebuke that we need to hear, we would hear. Whether that's for our leaders in this church or in other churches around the world, whether that's for us as individuals, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to hear and not only to hear but to take heart, take it to heart and repent and put our trust afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to confess that as we look at our world so often we just tinker around the edges. Lord, we try to fix up all the things that really just don't matter that much. 
And Lord, we let go the most important thing. That is that you should be at the centre of the world. Lord, as we think about our world, we are deeply, deeply grieved. Lord, the pandemic that we're in reminds us that we live in a world in rebellion against you. The situation in Afghanistan, Lord, reminds us that we live in a world that is in rebellion against you. Well, the divisions that are tearing apart societies across the world, particularly in Western societies, Lord, those divisions remind us that we live in a world where you are not at the centre. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercy and your grace that through the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to all the earth that you would continue to work out your great plan that your mountain would become the highest of all the mountains, that people would stream to it and that they would long to walk in your ways. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.